Hello, and welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. My name is Ilana Leone, and I've devoted my career to helping education brands build their brand awareness and engagement. Each week, I sit down with educators, edtech entrepreneurs, and experts in educational marketing and community building. All of them will share their successes and failures using social media, inbound marketing or content marketing, and community building. I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. Hello, everyone. I'm Alana Leone. I'm the CEO of Leone Consulting Group, and welcome to this week's episode of All Things Marketing and Education. If you're hearing me sound a little less excited than usual, we're recording this episode the week of the tragedy in Texas, and you all know how much I love these podcasts and how much they inspire me, but this week has really just taken it out of me emotionally and physically. So if you're hearing me sound a lower tone than usual, it is no way um, something about the speaker, because I am so excited to welcome Jose to this show. Um, but we're all just struggling. So I wanted to just tell you and be transparent and normalize how much everybody is going through what's going on right now. And my hearts go out to everybody struggling. And we, we will probably touch a little bit about this on the podcast. Um, but back to Jose, I, I, I truly cannot think of a better guest to join me today. Jose Luis Vilson is a veteran educator. He's a writer. He's a speaker. He's an activist. And he'll be talking with me about all things math, social justice, and really anything in between all of that in K-12 education and recently in higher education as well. He is the author of This Is Not a Test, a new narrative on race, class, and education. And he writes about math, race, social justice for a number of organizations and publications, New York Times, The Guardian, Ted, El Dario, La Prensa, The Atlantic. He's a national board certified teacher. And if you don't know what that is, please Google it. It is very something very hard to get, um, very impressive. And for all of you K-12 educators listening, um, it would be something that would significantly help you um, and professionally develop you. Um, he is a Math for America master teacher. He's the executive director of EduColor, which we will be talking about. It's an organization dedicated to race and social justice issues in education. He is currently doing a doctoral um, he's currently a doctoral student studying sociology and education at the Teachers College in Columbia University. And he's also on the board of directors for the National Board of Professional Teaching Standards and Power My Learning. So I know that that is a lot, but I know he wouldn't talk about himself in that, in that comprehensive way if I asked him to. He's such a humble human being. Um, personally, I met Jose when he was blogging for Edutopia, which feels like, holy moly, lifetimes ago. And I remember seeing him in first person at Skywalker Ranch. And it was just a, a crazy world of having the most inspiring people come to this billionaire's playground out in the back of the woods somewhere. Um, I just loved getting to know him. I loved following him and being inspired by him on social media afterwards. Jose is someone I look to and always get inspiration from. And I am not a stalker, I swear, but I, I do read almost every single one of your tweets, Jose. Um, 
you make me pause and think critically about so many things sometimes that I take for granted. And I, I thank you for that. I want to let the audience know, I'm sure it'll come out, but you are a funny, you are a kind human being, and I am just in awe of everything you do in education. So with that, I want to welcome Jose. I'm just, I'm definitely appreciative. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, I am excited to get started and get the audience to get to know you. So why don't we just start with that? Maybe just tell the audience a little bit more, add a little more context about you. And in particular, I'd love to know the Jose before education. What got you into education to begin with? And then since you have all these layers now as an author, as an activist, you know, you have the, the teaching in K-12, but now the higher ed and being a student yourself, like how has that changed throughout your journey? Whew. I, I want to thank you for this question. I mean, something that consistently comes up for me is the notion of alignment. Um, I've consistently thought about how uh, a lot of my pre-K through 12 education um, gave me lenses for the sort of education that is possible when uh, adults really come together and are thoughtful about how they engage children. You know, I grew up uh, in the Lower East Side that was just in, of Manhattan, which was just transitioning from a predominantly Jewish neighborhood to a multicultural neighborhood with, you know, black folks, uh, Latinx folks, um, Asian folks. Um, so we had a, a broad set of people. But uh, most of my teachers, if not all, from pre-K to 12 were white Jewish women. So, like, in addition to, like, my own Catholic upbringing, I was also going to synagogue uh, two or three times <laughs> throughout the, that career. So I, I was pretty familiar uh, with that sort of religiosity, and that was pretty cool. Uh, but then, you know, I also got a little deeper into, like, you know, Catholic school. So I went to Nativity Mission School for middle school, and I did really well uh, thanks to that element and you know from there like i started to get a lens of education as like servant leadership which is really uh thought-provoking and in high school uh, something similar where i went to xavier high school a lot of uh, prominent folks went there and um over time though like and syracuse university was really it like that was a space that i said i'm going to become like who i actually am and you know like computer science was a good thing for me to learn but it wasn't going to be the thing that i wanted to do and all of my like actual learning happened outside of the classroom which you know i, I consistently advocate for and so by the time i came to senior year like education went from the back of my mind to like, I could kind of do this in the middle of my mind to like, no, this is the thing I want to do. I want to teach. And even though uh, a lot of my classmates came out of college with the 60K, 70K salaries coming out. And of course I was going to achieve something that was a 42K starting. Um, I recognized that teaching was a thing that would allow me to allow more students to have the sort of experience that I got. And uh, at the moment, too, it was interesting because there were articles about how there were a lot of dropout rates. And informally, I knew that I was just probably one of the markers for whether or not a student was actually going to stay in high school. So I said, well, if I'm going to affect high school dropout rates, then I need to go back to eighth and seventh grade and catch them in the middle grade so that they can have a strong foundation in math. And so um, a lot of this was just a line that said social justice is mathematics for me and it is like education for me. And it is like all these different things all at the same time because I knew how important it was for students to get opportunities. So hopefully that provides a lot of helpful context for this conversation and all the other ones. 
Yes. Yeah. And I always think about that too. It's like, what is that age that, you know, and when you talked about what's that age you can make the most difference um, and what age is, it's never too late, but what age is harder to get them to change the trajectory and get them to open up possibilities. And I love the way you phrase that. Um, let's talk about your book. I know it's been, it's been a minute since that book's been out, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit because when you talk about race and math, I think your book talks about that in quite detail. So why don't you tell me about like what inspired you to write the book and what's been your journey since it's been out? And just I'd love to hear from you since you are so active in social media, if you've seen some ripple effects around it. Oh, definitely. So, uh, this is not a test, a new narrative on race, class, and education. It's interesting because, you know, I was a, I still am a big fan of going to Barnes and Noble and like browsing the education section specifically. Um, at that moment, um, there were so many different people who had come out with books, but uh, they were generally either former educators or celebrities or folks who had lots of money and had already had a certain level of success. So um, if you don't see the book, that you uh, want to read, that you should go write it is what the phrase is. Uh, it's been parroted a million times, but it definitely became true. So my blogging, luckily for me, like allowed me a way for um, to have a conversation that wasn't being had across the board. And so I said, well, if I'm going to write all these things, I was writing a post felt like every single day minus the weekends i said I, I could probably try to tap in and write a book it took a little while about four years but i finally had a manuscript i tried to shop it to a lot of different education publishers didn't didn't fly very well with a lot of folks until it got to Haymarket, and they were like oh we'll take it i said thank you so much um and so of course you know about a year plus after shout outs to them uh we were able to come out with the book i think it was um may of 2014 mm -hmm. um and i was the only current classroom teacher at that time that had um a book out um and that was really awesome to have um and i think that was my way of trying to say like we actually have stories too that we want to share and you know it's interesting because you know the book gets released um i'm at the united federation of teachers headquarters and there's a big book celebration for it and a lot of my friends are there but then of uh, the day after like not even like a few hours actually after the party i was on an amtrak to go to the white house and i was um able to meet up with about 15 to 20 teacher leaders from across the country and, and of course um the 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 first vice well the, the vice president's wife at that time which is now like the first lady jill biden was there and that was a really uh pro I guess it was really awesome just to be in that space and listen to her thoughts on things in addition to Arnie Duncan and so many other uh, policymakers. But um, I think that's kind of, that set the tone. I said, okay, like the book is going to give me a way to have a conversation with multiple people across the board. Like this is written for educators shortly, but it's also written for the general public to get a lens of what educators can do and should do with their voice. Um, so it's got tidbits practically for everybody. And of course, you can't tell a story unless somebody actually knows you. So I felt like if I interject a little bit of who I am and why it is that I do what I do, then maybe other people can you know, follow that path as well. Yeah. 
And have you seen other people follow a little bit of that path? I've never seen a book like that. And when it came out, like you said, you were the only educator writing in education. And for me, that's it's somewhat baffling, but it, it baffled. But it's like it's also understandable because educators have 10 million jobs. It's not like we're asking you to be authors on top of it. But what you said is, yes, I have a story to tell, too. I'm already writing. And sometimes we put this up in our head of, oh, a book is too much. And I start talking to educators, especially at Edutopia. I'm like, well, you kind of already wrote five books by the time all the blog posts you did. So let's just gather your thoughts and let's get you a voice in education who needs to be heard, heard. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, too, because when I came out with that book, um, publishers were leery. And that includes agents, too, were leery about publishing a current classroom teacher because so many folks who were trying to publish books by educators were focused on practice and not enough about the narrative or the story. They wanted teachers to just give practical tips and not enough about like what their actual thing is. What I found was later on, like people started to see uh, the things that I was doing either on social media or wherever, or even my blogging as a template for how they were going to build up teacher leaders and their profile. And I'm always fascinated by being the blueprint because, <laughs> you know, I was dangerous, you know, and maybe I still am in that way. Uh, but, you know, that I became the template for a lot of different people. And, you know, I see books now. There are some books, obviously, that are still practice heavy. But I do see like some books that are becoming a lot more narrative driven and story driven, which I think is really awesome to see. Um, in particular, there's just two that I can think of just off the top of my head. I'm thinking about uh, Patrick Harris's uh, The First Five Years more recently, where he gets more narrative driven about his work. Um, and of course, Not Light But Fire by Matthew Kay. Um, that book is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal read, uh, very poetic from the beginning. But he talks about his failures, too, um, from the practice standpoint, which, again, publishers were leery to put out. And it's not to say, like, either of these two, like, are somehow um, just straight up Xeroxing my work. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm more saying is that, like, I'm glad that publishers are now opening their eyes to the notion that teachers can actually contribute something uh, to the narrative around education from the publishing standpoint. So uh, the more educate, well, the more, uh, I guess, publishers can actually ask for those things, the better. Yeah. And, and for those of you that were scribbling down those book titles, know that in our show notes, we will put them on there with links. So no need if you're on the go or just want that information know that we always publish show notes and at the end of the episode i'll give you the link to the show notes as well and and for any of you educators that are listening now that writing a book intrigues you and it, maybe it's a bit on a on your bucket list we have an episode with sarah thomas um she is the founder of edumatch and also helps educators self-publish too so we'll put that link in the show notes as well so why don't we switch gears a little bit, Jose, and talk about all of the other stuff you're doing on top <laughs> of being a classroom educator, um, one of which is the Educolor movement. Can you tell our audience just a little bit about that, how it came to be, and maybe it's, its evolution, because it's been around for a while and has gone through some twists and turns, right? Surely. Um, so Educolor, um, 
It's an organization dedicated to race and social justice issues. Uh, we were actually founded really in 2014 as an organization, though in 2012 is really where like we were starting to kind of think about something. So it had a whole different cast of characters and we were thinking, well, maybe we should create some sort of audit for diversity and we call it EduColor. But then we also recognize that like there was really a serious lack of diversity. So we needed to get a little deeper with the work. Um, and so, you know, I had this hand, like I had this name in my hand, but I didn't really have a movement behind it around until 2014 when uh, we really started to get a good sense of um, what was happening, I guess, in the world more generally. So we recognized, for example, there was a fight for 15. There was a Black Lives Matter movement. There were all these different, like, you know, uh, conversations about race specifically, but also other um, identity markers that, you know, all, all of a sudden had a movement behind them. And I said, oh, well, EduColor, like education more generally needs something that can tap into that conversation because we were not having it. And so EduColor became that organization that um, even though we were definitely race first, we ended up just taking up a bunch of different um difficult conversations because of the framework that we were able to establish around having those conversations. So yes, like we've had several evolutions um, over the last uh, eight years, but I mean, at this point in time, uh, our big, we have some really awesome contributions. Obviously our EduColor chat is still uh, very well attended. We have one on Twitter and that's been really good to have, but um, we also host our EduColor summits. Uh, our third one is coming up. Um, actually our, our third virtual one, cause we had a bunch before then um, it's coming up in July and that's pretty awesome. And we have, you know, awesome speakers that usually come through. They share a story, but they also connect it to something that they're doing out in the world. And that's been pretty inspirational. Uh, hundreds of people attend those things. But then also, too, you know, we've been able to partner with a lot of different organizations, including TED, including um, the Expectations Project, including the Center for American Progress. So we have organizations, large and small, who all want to, like, get a little a, a better sense of how to have the conversation around diversifying the teaching profession and then a little, little deeper and not to mention have a more relevant conversations that are contemporary and are like timely to the moment. So um, that's been EduColor's work and we're still a small organization, but we are mighty and that's been a real big blessing. Yeah. I've loved seeing your growth, seeing how you contribute into like consistently with the chats, but then also your summits. I just love seeing you all as a resource that was much needed. There was nothing like that. People weren't even talking about that before you all decided to, to get in there. And I know that was a, a reason why you did that. But w when you think about, you mentioned difficult conversations and you also talked about you had a framework for them, not to get too deep into it, because I know if people want to learn more, they can go to your website, they can attend your summit and we'll have all those links in the show notes. But can you go into a little bit of it's just so hard for so many people to start conversations. And so what they tend to do is just ignore it. Right. So yeah. how do they how do they even begin? Usually it starts by asking good questions. So um, one thing that EduColor loves to do more generally is ask where the source of the pain is and then 
who's most affected by the pain. It's interesting because, uh, for example, one wouldn't think that Educolor has had specific alignment to um, the catastrophe that happened in Paris a bunch of years ago, right? But um, we actually set aside the chat that we had for that tragedy and we instead went right for like <laughs> the 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 conversation that we needed to have about Paris and uh, questions around religion, questions around um, what it means to like look internationally at at global events and what we can do in our own context. Uh, once we said, okay, here is the source of pain, and here are the issues that are intertwined, we started to learn how to name the things. And then when we named them, we, uh, I guess, gathered a way to define what we needed to talk about. Then we knew that, you know, we need to align our frame around what justice might look like in that space, um, around what would healing look like in that space. And then, of course, too, like, what are some ways that educators can then take our conversation and either have it amongst each other as professionals within the within the building or uh, with their own students, which, of course, consistently happen. Right. And so, like, they, there are elements, of course, there's always going to be rage. There's always going to be depression and sadness. There's always going to be. And we should allow ourselves to feel the feels. Right. Regardless of what we define as professional. And then just on top of that, then it's like, OK, so then what do we do next? with this big conversation. Um, and so, you know, we provide each other resources practically for free. Like we're just, you know, sharing the things that we've uh, been able to share. So like that knowledge space and being able to knowledge gather is a really a prominent part of what we do with Educolor. So um, it, it's just, that's would be the framework. It's just like being able to say like, let's name the pain, let's name who's affected, Let's talk about the messaging and then how are we going to have the conversations with the key stakeholders, especially the folks who are most affected um, in our current context and then try to build out from there. So um, that, that, that goes. And it's funny because, like I said, we did not necessarily think of ourselves as a religion based organization. We were just trying to tap into a difficult conversation because no other education chat was trying to do that. We said this is the thing. And, you know. We did teen pregnancy, for example, and shout out to Christina Setzer for that one. Um, she she was the moderator for that one, and it was difficult. People like attacked us in many ways from different mm -hmm. sectors, but we felt like if we don't have the conversation in a human way um, and tap into the people who ha have been affected and want to find ways to talk about it, because these are things that are happening, then we we're not doing our job if we don't talk about it. So let let's be the organization that does that. Yeah. And I love that the way you frame it is curiosity driven and collective, right? So it really resonates with me as a community builder is we don't just go in and say, here's the thing or ask questions just my, for myself. You're saying together, let's come up with a framework that works and, mm -hmm. and let's figure out collectively what, what makes the most sense that we all agree on. And that is such a healthy way to approach it. And, but the thing is you have to create a safe enough space where people can be vulnerable to even ask those questions. And that's what I do love about your organization. Um, speaking of educolor, social justice, talking about difficult conversations, how do you approach those types of conversations? You being an activist yourself too, I know you talk about yourself and share about yourself in your classroom, how does that affect your students? And do you interweave a lot of these concepts into your teaching? Oh, it's a must. It's a must. Um, 
it, it's interesting too because it's not like um we were trained on messaging or anything like that. I mean, we did have folks who were definitely doing that as a job, but generally like it became even more imperative because we were identified as of color, as black, as Latinx, as indigenous, whatever that may be, right? Like we need to be able to like have those deep conversations. And of course, like we have to not just talk the talk, but walk that talk and walk the walk as well. So, um, as a math educator, um, I was, uh, it was 15 years of straight up saying, you know what, like, I'm going to do this with a sense of justice, uh, first and foremost. So there were times in the curriculum when I was like, oh, we're going to, I know we want to discuss like, uh, turning line, like, I guess, straight lines into uh, tables and making graphs and all that other stuff. But I can set that aside for a minute because my students are really angry right now about what's happening with Trayvon Martin or what ha what's happening with Eric Gardner. Or, like there's a sort of um, really ca catastrophic event that I need to set aside with some time for in my own classroom. And, you know, it's interesting too, because like people say, well, you shouldn't bring up the conversation because like, who said you should bring it up? I'm like, the kids usually like have it on their faces. And unfortunately I was often in positions where they knew that I would be the only one who would try to address it and to address it in a way that made sense. And yeah. so for, for a lot of my students, they were looking to me to have the difficult conversations because um, it, it's funny, like it isn't. So the argument for, uh, diversifying the teaching profession isn't just so like they can see somebody like me walking through that door. That's one element, surely. But I still have to put in the work of building those relationships, being authentic with them, and actually bringing my lived experience into the things that I'm doing. So um, when I was in the classroom, I was very intent on saying, like, let me just create a little bit of space in case y'all need it. There were some days where, like, we literally went half the class just talking about the thing. And they weren't trying to like, do that intentionally to get away from the work because they ended up, like, doing very well on so much of, like, the assessments and everything. It was just more like, this was a tension and no one else was going to name it except for the person they feel like they trusted the most with that. And that was me. So it, it was kind of wild, but it, these are good things as well, because it also ensures that like, if I can do it, I think anybody can do it and they can all do it authentically. Um, even if uh, they may have different viewpoints, if they're, if they're willing to get vulnerable and, you know, actually listen, actively listen to students. Um, these are all, oh, by the way, like these things are not all that different from math practice standards so should an administrator walk in i'm like i'm practicing the standards they're right here like i'm you know constructing viable arguments i'm modeling i'm doing you know but i'm just doing it with a topic that may not necessarily be germane to the like math content standards good on me yeah, it's it's so interesting that you, you frame it that way, because otherwise it's a proactive way to, to create a foundation and trust of you showing yourself as being vulnerable to your kids as well. And a lot of those core concepts remind me of so much of what I've seen in classrooms um, from Edutopia around social emotional learning. It's like if you're not ready to learn, how can you begin to ask them to do some things that sometimes take a lot of energy and focus? I can't even focus. I've got this. They're all like you said, it's all over their faces. So how do we touch base, show them that we potentially are human too. We may be struggling with this as well. And we just want to hear them out. I don't think students get heard as much. Educators don't get heard as much as I'd like at all, but students don't get heard as much at all. So I, I love that you put that through and, and how you can directly correlate to that to the standards. 
because there's a misnomer there, right? <laughs> I mean that that's but that's the kind of the subversion too is like when it, if you have the right administrator, they'll understand why you're trying to do what you're doing, right? Um, and unfortunately, if you don't have the right administrator or the right person over, I guess looking over your curriculum, then you're gonna have to find a way to you know subvert and divert, right? Um, the other element too that I do want to elevate is that you're not always gonna have the right words. Um, and that's okay to say. There are some times when it's just important to say something to the effect of, this is something I am openly struggling with and um, I don't have the words right now, but I want you to know that I hear you out. Um, and when you can go there, then that's a good thing. There's a lot of folks, especially, you know, for example, after the 2020 um, you know, racial uprisings, we recognize that there's a lot of folks who are looking for that book or looking for that blog post or trying to run out and like trying to find all the resources to try to have the conversation, to have all the right words. But at some point it's like, yeah, but is it authentic to what you are thinking and what you are feeling or what you are processing? And if it's not, then um, it, it it's not as helpful as if you say something to the effect of, I'm sad about this. Like, I wish I could do more about this and being able to say those things to students. And those are the words that came out of you. Like, that's way more authentic than you trying to go get. Uh, but and of course, there's all due respect to any number of authors, including myself. Like, if you just had to get my book, great, go do that. But if um, that book doesn't help you get the authenticity you need and, the, you know, the active listening that you need, then, you know, it, it's not going to really be helpful when it comes to having the conversation with students. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because part of me is like, okay, let's get tactical. Let's get them a framework. They can, you know, follow these steps. Like, it's just like anything is being able to start is the hardest thing, but you don't want to start and go, okay, I, I've checked this part off. I've shown my vulnerability. Okay, I've, I've listened to them because when we are fundamentally checking things off of a list, they know, everyone knows, gosh, they can smell it and they will attack right yeah. so it's just don't do that but i think it's a tricky situation because people are just in the beginning want something they want to read up about it like you said and what i find you do is you provide people a foundation of comfort for them to even dip the toe in the water oh it's a must it's a must um then, you know, this kind of connects back a little bit to the Twitter chats, too, because like Twitter is an open space, isn't it? Like it's a completely open space and folks can try to like jump in and do this, that and the third. But th there has to be. And this is what I, I actually do appreciate about having been part of EduColor is like there are roles that some of us take on to ensure the safety <laughs> of EduColor chat. So like there have been times when any number of people just come from, you know, any different spaces and. And I'm the first one to say, okay, you know what? I'll step in in this role and y'all continue chatting and I'll make sure I, you know, take care of the folks who are not being constructive or helpful um, in the ways that they, they need to be for this chat to go on. So um, either whether they're trying to advertise something or they yeah. just straight up want to just disagree with everything and everybody, or like they just want to say a bunch of random things that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Like when people see that, like, and it's funny, like it's the folks who aren't speaking, but like they're, they're reading. Those are the folks who um, are most affected by me saying, you know what, I'm going to take a stand and protect this work. And it ends up like 
getting that ripple effect of like this organization actually cares about what they're talking about, uh, which again is not necessarily common practice for a lot of our edu- I guess education chats more generally. Yeah, I mean, you all are a community. And I think when you open up your community to an open space, it becomes your responsibility to make sure that people feel safe enough to actually have a productive conversation. Right. And so, you know, it's not a private Facebook group where you've approved everybody and things like that. It's, it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. And I love that you are taking it very seriously to make sure that we need to be feel safe enough. And if you all are distracting the conversation or not here for the right reasons, please leave, you know, um, so with your work, you've got Educolor, you're now in the university, <laughs> shaping minds, you're a student yourself, um, so many years in the classroom, an author. Can you talk to me about like, a, everyone loves to see like, okay, with all this work, Jose, you're touching so many minds, but can you bring it back to maybe a couple of stories around maybe a student that you had that, that, that changed as a result of, it doesn't have to be around activism, but I mean, you've touched so many lives and maybe an educator in particular too, of just, there's so much we don't know as human beings. And sometimes it's easier for us to, to put the blinders on and say, let me go through the motions. But what you do fundamentally opens up those blinders for a lot of educators. And I'm just wondering, like, if they, why does an educator, and I know this is 10 million questions in one, so pick one, but why would an educator prioritize anything around what you're saying right now if they're just fundamentally burned out and just trying to go through the motions. And we know a lot of educators and there's no judgment here for that because being an educator is the most challenging job I've ever encountered. Well, okay. Um, All right. I got one. So my first year, there was the student who was in eighth grade and, you know, this, it was eighth grade honors class. Of course, like I wasn't, I wasn't at the point where I was telling everybody to abolish gifted and talented or any of that stuff. Like I was just a first year teacher trying to go through the motions, becoming the conglomerate of all the other teachers who I was, you know, watching at the time and learning from. Um, and we have this one student named Steven. That's, that's his real name um, because he's an adult now. So thankfully, like I could say it, but um, he, you know, was considered lazy, but smart, you know, that that's the stereotype. So, like, they were doing well on exams. They were doing well, like, on um, other sort of, like, performance-based assessments. But, like, they weren't really turning in homework and um, not doing their work more generally unless they got pushed. So, of course, like, me as someone who was, like, that eighth grader who sometimes people did try to consider me lazy, though I think I did pretty dang well in middle school. I was like, I think you could do so much more. I just need to convince them of how to do it. Um, then, you know, over that school period time, like we started also learning too that, like he had some issues at home and he wasn't necessarily like being cared for in the ways that he would have wanted. Um, I'll leave it at that. But then, you know, he, he eventually like kicks it up a notch and just enough for him to graduate. And, you know, I made him kind of like a quasi teacher too. I was like, Oh, if you can do this, like that would be phenomenal. You, I will guarantee you like this grade, yada, yada. And like he, he stepped right into it. Uh, he was excited to like be that helper. Um, even with some of our class clowns who like, I also had a love for it, but still, um, you know, and it was myself and like our, my, um, 
my social studies counterpart, we were both like on top of him, just trying to make sure that like he had something. But it was just a seed that we were planting, a seed, right? And so um, over time, I had become a, a, a pretty young math instructional coach. So like it was maybe my fourth, fifth year. And the context for that too is like not only you know was I becoming a math instructional coach, which basically meant like to be a leader, but also. Um, the New York Times and all these other like different mass media publications were publishing uh, New York City teachers test scores um, in their papers. Right. Because you remember the value added measures and all the test score stuff that was happening uh, back in the peak of no child left behind slash race to the top. Right. But back to the student, like at some point um, I-, I was having a really hard time because I was trying to teach a class. And I was out a lot because of my responsibilities with my math instructional stuff. And I was really frustrated with administration. I was really frustrated with uh, having my test scores being published and people saying, oh, like he's he's so terrible at his job because look at him at the bottom of like his whole school. And it's like, but I'm doing math coaching and trying to teach at the same time. And the kids are all liking what I'm doing. So I don't know what's going on. But, um, you know, I was feeling pretty down on myself. I was like, is this going to be the thing for me? And then at some point, like I walk into the principal's office because that's where my main office was. And somebody taps me on the shoulder and they're like, Mr. Wilson, I'm like, who are you? And it's like this really like tall guy um, shaved completely. And um, he's got like this, um, this, I want to say this white coat on him and like it's military uniform and it's like me it's steven i'm like steven what how are you and he's like oh i'm fine how are you i'm like i'm okay now like how can i help you like i was stunned for like a good minute or two that a this kid had grown into like something so so much larger but then b that he was coming in with a military uniform so he long story short he told me that, you know, the seeds that me and my social studies counterpart had planted into him had finally grown at some point in the middle of high school. And he said, oh, I'm just going to rock everything. Like, I'm smart enough to do algebra, smart enough to do trig, I'm smart enough to do calculus. And he had gone into MIT. And then he gets into MIT, joins the JROTC program, becomes part of the ROTC. He's learning how to, and of course, like, I'm stunned by all this stuff. I'm like, you're telling me all these things and I'm about to go eat lunch. Like, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) Um, But then, of course, I get to follow him on Facebook and on Facebook, I, you know, I start following him and he's going all around the world, all around the world. Um, And not just for military activities, but just because, like, he was given that privilege. But, you know, it it really gave me a lot of heart for the things that I want to do with my students. So maybe it's interesting for us to think about how, you know, we are good at planting seeds as educators. We don't know how they're going to grow, but we ought to be proud of ourselves when, you know, we do these superhuman. And by superhuman, I mean that, like, we're going above and beyond that which, like, the average person is asked to do. Like, we're asked to take on a moral code. We're asked to do this at less pay. We're asked consistently to, like, stay stay longer or come in uh before like in the early like before the sun even comes up for some of us right to go into our classrooms and be ready um for things that you know frankly we should be reacting more humanly to like there are times when we want to be super duper angry at students and um that's not our job or like we want to be um i guess um way tired and depressed but we have to like stand up straight and well wherever well wherever possible right and we have to be um these, I guess these these uh, models and figures for our students uh, that, that show extra compassion, extra love, uh, especially in moments of tragedy and, and as well as triumph, right? We plant these seeds 
and then we hope that they grow into something that uh, can surpass us and the things that that we want for them and so uh i've been very blessed to like teach over a thousand students and every time i look at any number of my students i'm like oh my gosh like i think i i think the plant grew inside you and um i don't know what fed you shortly after me but i hope i had a a, a positive effect on that growth so um that that's what i got <laughs> yeah and i think that when you talked about that story that was so touching is is about transferring your belief into them and that belief inside them grew and that that 100 happened to me like i wouldn't have I, there's no way i would be where i was gone into education um god i've even finished high school honestly i didn't know anyone that was doing any of these things it wasn't until a teacher told me and believed in me and actually did a lot of what the things you were talking about of gave me extra responsibility and said oh yeah you can do this Totally. You can and getting them excited about it and then taking that and saying, well, if I can do that, I can do this. If I can do that, I can do this. And that was such a beautiful story. So thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Um, half of our audience here. So we've talked a little bit about things around the educators in particular. We have a lot of innovative educators, educators that are, are dipping their toe in the water of ed tech, educators that are just trying to switch things up in their classroom, interested about the space. But then we also have a lot of people in ed tech in particular. So we have marketers, leaders that love to listen in on these shows. And this is your chance really to talk to them. Um, I want to keep it open because I, I think there are lots of things we, we could talk about. But is there anything in particular you'd like to say to them, potentially, if there's a, a way you could say, hey, if you could just do this, this might help support educators most? I want to throw it out to you because educators tr love and find so much benefit in the practical and strategic aspects of the show. But the ed tech people, I really say, listen as much as possible. Listen, listen, listen. And I like to talk to them directly as well. I, I want to thank you for that opportunity. Um, and it's interesting because I, I do kind of, even before I started teaching, I kind of sat in that intersection uh, as a computer science major, uh, bachelor's and um I think so. There's a there's a few elements here, but the one I really want to tap into is language. Um, we recognize that you know our country at this moment is uh, we we have a large influx of students with interrupted formal education. A lot of, a lot of students who are linguistically gifted, um, not just in English, but in so many other languages from across the board. I mean, uh, New York City alone has dozens of languages that uh, teachers have to. Um, you know, acclimate to and learn and get better at. Um, and of course that, you know, of course the rest of the, the country as well. Um, it's important for us to find ways to get teachers um, more acclimated into what, you know, people have called like English as a new language, multilingual learning, yada, yada, right? Like we need more tools that can help us get better at like serving students who uh, English may not be the language that they're tapped into. Yeah. Um, math, I would just say too, like, especially like when it comes to math, for example, like I know that there were times when I struggled uh, trying to find the right resources for my students who uh, were either speaking Spanish dominantly or uh, I had a bunch of students who were coming from Yemen. So like Arabic was a thing that like I needed to acclimate to pretty quickly as well. Um, and so, like, there's obviously there's going to be teachers who, like, you know, everybody should just keep up and just be English. I'm like, no, 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 no. Actually, like, we would do better 
by trying to figure out ways for us to pick up a little bit of the languages that our students actually know. So in the ways that like ed tech can be helpful in uh, trying to ensure that teachers uh, can actually tap into students' languages and they, they, we can actually do a, a much larger service for the teaching profession more generally. Uh, Cause as we know from the research, like if we, we can actually do um, the thing where we teach students in their home language the math that they need, then then they'll be able to pick it up in English pretty quickly once they get strong at that mathematical component. So um, the, the, these things are transferable, and the ways that we can help adults get better at the thing that they do, the, the the more helpful it is for everybody. And of course, not to mention, we want students to be able to travel around the world, be able to go to different places, right? And so um, how we model that as teachers is also critical too, and the way that EdTech can help with however that works out and not just like make all your materials English even more so. So the more languages we have um, available to us, especially for students who are, um, in, who are under interrupted formal education, the better. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I work with a lot of ed tech companies. I've been in the space for a while, but I cannot tell you, I think at this point, there's not it's not a majority by any means. It's not even a, it's not even half that I think have the supports that you're talking about right now. Um, mainly because it's, it's quite difficult, but it doesn't like what I'm hearing you say is that it fundamentally stops the learning process. And if we can get them learning in their own language first, that's the foundation they build on eventually to get into English. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, that, that's part of the work and hopefully, um, I think everybody across the board, education more generally, but specifically at tech can be helpful because the technology is right there. Just, you know, help us build the tools, uh, try to talk to folks who are trained in um, English as a new language, then, you know, we'd be able to have that conversation. But we can't continue to uh, put tools out and only make them in English when we have so many students who uh, definitely need like tools that are acclimating to them instead. Yeah. And that, I mean, sometimes a lot of companies say we want to, we want to be student centered as possible. We want to be teacher centered, student centered, but if you're not really meeting the student where they are and how they fundamentally talk and then beyond even language, there's cultural considerations, right? When you were talking about yeah. Arabic and stuff, how they approach lots of things, you, you're probably figuring out on the go and then you're learning and then going, oh, this works, that works, that don't do that again. Um, so I, I thank you for that. Um, we also talk here a lot about accessibility too. So really making sure on top of that, if there is any type of disability or any type of extra support a student needs is how can we build that seamlessly into a product as well and not make it an afterthought. Too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, as I'm thinking more about this ability more generally, it really is like incumbent upon societies to open up their like whatever it is to make it accessible. Right. Like and because it doesn't just benefit those who are um, 
I guess, quasi disabled, right? Like it's helpful for everybody. Like there are days when I'm so thankful that there's a ramp that goes into a building because I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted this day or my feet hurt or like it's, it helps everybody. Um, similarly, um, it, how cool has it been to like have a Zoom where uh, someone is doing sign language and you're like, oh, that means everybody can tap into this message or like you can actually read what the person's saying. Like those are really cool tools for folks who aren't just disabled, but also for folks who are uh, quasi-abled, right? Like, that the, the, that spectrum is worth discussing because, it, you know, like, it, it helps everybody get acclimated to what's happening. And the more tools, the better for everybody. Agreed. Well, I could talk to you for a long time. I think our audience could learn so much from you and multiple things that you've talked about. Each question that we've talked about could literally be its own episode. So maybe we can have you back next season and have you in to go deeper in some of these things. I would love it. Um, I would love to know a little bit more about you selfishly. And you, we've, you've talked about all the things you're doing. And I know that when you started as a math teacher and you come out of computer science and you say, I'm going to teach, I bet you didn't think that you would be doing all of these things that you're doing now, right? And the, just life is funny that way, where we just, we go with what our passion is, what our heart is telling us. And there's a little bit of luck, there's opportunity, there's all of these things. But what's next for you? I know that's a hard question, but what do you hope, you know, if like, you know, maybe five years down the road, 10 years down the road, here's Jose, here's what he did. I mean, you're right. I do think that um, I'd like to figure out what bigger ways I can make an impact, specifically uh, trying to get education more centered into uh, so much of the mainstream dialogue. I feel like we often like get specialized, like um, people understand that education is important, but they don't really understand like the mechanism that is education in the way that like, you know, for example, I think um, Abbott Elementary has pushed education into the mainstream in that way. And that's been really awesome to see um, because we were kind of looking for something much the way that police officers or doctors or other professionals kind of have shows in that way. I mean, that tends to be a symbol for what education does. But like, OK, let me go back to myself because I just went like all the way out to something else. But um, <laughs> you, like you knew that was going to happen. But generally, like I would love to see more of a mainstream impact and i'd love to be part of that um and of course i want to finish up my doctorate that'd be really nice um because the not the knowledge creation that that allows me would be pretty awesome and then not to mention like being able to continually build bridges between efforts in higher education and then k-12 to ensure that there is that cross-cultural conversation so we can continue to build on a, a equitable playing field instead of like trying to listen to some experts that are out there somewhere it's like no actually like educators are also experts in in their own way too and so uh, that's part of the reason why i get to be part of the uh, board of directors for the national board of professionals teaching standards right it's like the notion that we're going to build a bridge that allows for everybody to get a benefit from the knowledge creation that we're, we're doing. So hopefully though, those are things that I get to contribute to over time too. And that is a bridge that is needed so, so badly. Um, so much we focus on K-12 and then we let our kids go and it's, it's, there's, there's no connection. There's no support 
and and K-12 doesn't doesn't even track into that. Right. So if you are fundamentally judging yourself on how many graduates, high school graduates that you're proud of and get into certain universities, they stop tracking them in terms of how successful they are. So we're not in it to get to that one little milestone. We're in it to help people become lifelong learners like you and I are and, and really just feel successful and feel like we have the tools and the passions to pursue what we want. And I, I love that you are focusing on that because I don't know many people that are right now. Right um, the last question I want to pose to you is one that we ask all of our guests. It's around inspiration, especially in times that are, are challenging beyond belief. Every week I feel like something new is thrown at us and there is exhaustion. There's burnout. There's, there's all of the things. How do you, yourself get inspired? How, what drives you to keep going? It could be some of our guests talk about books or podcasts or things they do in exercise. Um, it could be family, but I, it really helps uplift our audience to understand, you know, most of our guests are doing so much and they're feeling so much. How do they keep going? You mentioned family, you know, there was a time when, um, all I did was like just say, you know what, I'm about doing this work. I got to do this work. This is the work that I'm doing. And I, in many ways, I was living to work, right? But then um, there, there came a time, and especially I was listening to like so many of the retirees who were who were finishing up whatever like year it was. Like they were just about finished, and they were like, you know, I don't I don't live to work. I work to live. And so um, I started to see like what happened when folks just lived to work over time and how they rarely got to enjoy the fruits of their labor or they never gave themselves enough props or credit for the work that they were able to put in. And so I, I found myself saying, you know what, like, let me change this whole situation up. Like I got to figure out, like, and my son was like, he was still four, three or four. I was like, you know what? No, like it's time for me to like really change my life. And so, um, I started saying who takes priority in my life. And I said, okay, family has to be first. Um, and then everybody else needs to fall where they may, whatever concentric circles there are, like we need to figure out what that looks like. And that really has allowed for me to say, okay, I can, once I prioritized everything, um, things fell in place as they needed to. So that included like my work at school that included my work currently now, I'm um, even Educolor, which I was super, super passionate about. I'm like, you might be in my top five of things that I, I know I'm responsible for, but you're not, you're not going to be number one and you're not going to be number two because I have to ensure that like my son's okay, that my wife's okay, that like my people are good, that my friends are good. And so for me, I felt like, let me just reprioritize everything. And so like when, you know, trouble start, you know, really started coming down um, my path. I said, okay, that that's fine, but I, I need to, I'm going to de detach myself for a second and then really get a good sense of what's happening there that's causing me pain. And then, you know, compartmentalize it enough where I can actually either have a problem, you know, solved, or I can just say, you know what, like that still doesn't take priority over my family. Still doesn't take priority over my friends, over my own mental health, over, you know, me taking walks to and from uh, my son's school to drop him off, pick him up, have been profoundly uh, amazing for me. So, you know, me dropping him off and, you know, it's different. It's different. Like me being a classroom teacher at the time, like I wasn't able to do those sorts of things. Now I get to do that. 
And that's been really awesome to have. So just a little moments and being in the moment are, those are real powerful things for me. Awesome. Well, the last, last question is how can people get in touch with you? Um, know if you're a listener right now, we will put all of this in the show notes as well, but anything you want to throw out from some social handles, if people are inspired by you and want to continue the conversation. I am hyper responsive on Twitter. That would be at the JLV. Um, in addition, Instagram, the Jose Wilson, and of course my website, the Jose Um, I have a bunch of different things happening there too, but, um, those will be the three. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jose. I, I am just feeling grateful that you took the time out of your busy schedule to, to share your passion and what you're working on, which I'm always catching up on. I'm like, oh, he's doing this. Now he's in higher ed. Wow. <laughs> so I appreciate you. Everyone here, you can access this episode's show notes at our website, leoneconsultinggroup.com. That's two G's, consultinggroup.com backslash 22. It is our 22nd episode. So we will have detailed notes. We'll have highlights of everything that Jose said, and then also all the resources he mentioned too. So thank you all for joining. We will see you next time on all things marketing and education. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to dive deeper, you can visit leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash podcasts for all show notes, links, and freebies mentioned in each episode. And we always love friends, so please connect with us on Twitter at Leone Group. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and click the subscribe button to be the first one notified when our next episode is released. We'll see you next week on all things marketing and education.